Good morning and welcome to Reflection Home Video Deluxe Edition. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's no Deluxe Edition, there's just this. The Lord be with you. Would you pray with me, please? God of heaven and all creation, our Father, we bring our prayers to you this morning because you are caring and understanding, merciful and forgiving, gracious and loving. We pray that our souls would be right with you. Make in them whatever modifications and corrections you see fit. We pray for the soul of our nation, that you would rid it of greed and hate. Fill it with love for others without regard for their background and circumstances. We pray for our world, that your kingdom would come and your will be done here as it is in heaven. And now, O oh Lord, protect us from idols. Do not allow us to make you in our own image. Free us from the need to have you all figured out or to create an airtight theology that defines and limits you. Instead, lead us on a path of never-ending discovery so that our knowledge of you is always open, always fresh and creative, always ready to take hold of something new. All this we ask through Jesus our Savior, who has always loved us and will always love us through endless ages. Amen. All right, back to Hebrews chapter 5, and this morning we, get, we begin in verse 11. About this, and he's talking about his last statement, uh, which we went over last week, uh, where God has designated Jesus to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we could actually translate this about whom, it would be more accurate, about whom we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I'm going to begin with a personal reflection this morning. Uh, you won't get the connection at first, but as we go on, uh, I hope to make sense of it. Friday I was reading in the book of Acts, and I came to the last chapter, in the very last verses. Paul was under house arrest in Rome, but he was allowed to entertain guests where he were. And so people came to hear him, and Paul's objective, whenever someone came, is that he was trying to convince them about Jesus, Luke tells us. And so he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If you were going to have a conversation with Paul, you would hear about Jesus. I'm sure that he loved talking about him. If you look at the way he begins his letter to the Romans, it's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he, he starts talking about Jesus, telling us how he is not only the descendant of David, but also the Son of God. 
Paul never forgot his encounter with Jesus. Not, not for a moment. And he never forgot what Jesus had done for him. He had taken him from a persecutor of his church to become an apostle, really leading the majority of the New Testament uh, theology of Jesus. For those who listened to Paul, I'm sure that his enthusiasm was contagious. His, his drive to know Jesus and to know him better and better never became static or stale. In Philippians, he talks about all that he lost for the sake of Jesus, and he says that he counts everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So he had walked with Jesus for many years, and yet he was still driven to know him, to know him even better, more closely. When I read this, it took me back to the Jesus movement. Uh, I was just getting ready to graduate high school when my father's church suddenly exploded with all of these hippies leaving the counterculture, well, not so much leaving it as bringing it with them into church and, and finding Jesus in their lives, replacing whatever else had been there, mostly drugs and sex and rock and roll. But the Jesus movement really was about Jesus. The hippies who believed in him became Jesus freaks. We had Jesus festivals, Jesus marches, Jesus concerts, a Jesus people newspaper, and the Jesus movement even made it on the front page of Time magazine, which when magazines were still around, that was a big deal. We talked about Jesus all the time. Everyone had a story. Um, there was a magazine article that appeared in a German magazine, Brunt, and on the front cover, there was a photograph of two young people with a crowd behind them at one of the baptisms that my dad's church did in Corona Del Mar, California. And the title across the front of the cover was, Jesus is better than hash. Now, Francis Schaeffer took issue with that. He, he felt that that statement had no content, that it was trite. But if you think about it, it's no more trite than saying, once I was blind, but now I see. To say Jesus is better than hash is to say, I was in that drug culture looking for peace, love, truth, and did not find it. But in Jesus, I found what I was searching for. And he's better than hash. He's, he's better than all those other experiences that we had explored. Okay, so in time, all of that energy for Jesus gradually faded away. 
the movement evolved into an institution and there became a hardening of the categories in the words of uh, one anthropologist uh, the stratification of hierarchy in other words people began to be assigned roles it was no longer this egalitarian movement where anyone could talk about Jesus and everyone would listen it was becoming more the professionals talked about Jesus and the non-professionals sat and listened early in the history of Calvary Chapel um, the weekly bulletin that was passed out on Sunday morning had printed on it the philosophy of ministry of Calvary Chapel I mean it's the closest thing at that time that came to a doctrinal statement or a vision or a philosophy of ministry and one of the paragraphs on the back of that bulletin said we are not a denominational church nor are we opposed to denominations as such only their overemphasis of the doctrinal differences that have led to the division of the body of Christ now within two years of my dad's death there was a major division in the body of Calvary Chapel and it became divided into two denominations for all intents and purposes that's what they are those who broke away from the mothership in Costa Mesa claimed that they were doing it based on doctrinal differences the very thing that my dad had articulated would not happen in this non-denominational church now I don't mean to generalize all Calvary chapels and all Calvary Chapel pastors there's some very good people out there doing a good work and there are very uh, healthy communities of faith that go by the name of Calvary Chapel but there is also this this overarching situation that has come about what changed well there was a subtle shift from the person of Jesus Christ to the Word of God now you say well what's wrong with that doesn't the Bible in fact say that Jesus is the Word of God and that's true and as long as you keep those two thoughts together nothing's wrong um, there is no shift from Jesus to the Word Jesus and the Word uh, adhere together Jesus is the Word but the problem with what happened with let's say fundamentalism and its influence in Calvary Chapel wherever it's had that influence is that what results from moving from Jesus to emphasizing more the Word of God is Pharisaism and that's what the the Pharisees had they had the word Jesus said to them you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, God did not give us the Bible so that we can know the Bible. It took me a while to wake up to what was happening. We were emphasizing the importance of knowing the Bible, but I felt we weren't giving enough emphasis to developing the character of the believer. And so what we were doing was producing students of scripture who could quote a lot of verses and use them to justify their anger, their malice, their rudeness, their belligerence, their brutal way of treating others, and, and other attitudes and behavior that were not very Christ-like. Now, what you have, if in the name of the word, you're condemning people, something that Jesus said he did not come to do. Well, we also were producing ministers who had little or no integrity. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about all of them, but there's a number of them who have little or no integrity and are competing for influence and recognition. Okay, um, as my father's son, that's disturbing to me, but there you have it. Now, the reason I brought this up is because the writer of Hebrews witnessed something like this in his own time. He, he witnessed this kind of decline. He was writing to second and third generation Christians. Now, the first generation Christians, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of them thought Jesus was coming back in their own lifetime. Now imagine um, if as a Christian, people who were, used to be your neighbors are now skeptical of you. Uh, rumors are going around about those Christians that were not true. Uh, and there were periods of persecution, if not throughout the entire Roman Empire, as in the time of Nero, there was there were a burst of persecution in isolated areas. Um, from the time that Paul went evangelizing um, the world of the Mediterranean first century, um, he, he took lots of flack. He was persecuted. He, he was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was stoned. Um, not the uh, hippie type of stone. Uh, and those who followed him also suffered persecution. And he wrote to them and he said, those who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So after a while, these believers were becoming weary and their faith was giving out, which is something the writer of Hebrews really harps on. They were in danger of falling away. And so the writer scolds them with a stern warning that begins here in verse 11. It goes all the way into chapter 6, verse 12. And um, it, it moves like this. In verses 11 through 14, he's he tells them that they're behind on their education. In chapter 6, the first three verses, he says it's time to move from an introductory faith 
need to go deeper. In verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, he describes the severe danger of falling away. And then in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6, he gives them encouragement that they can do this, um, that he doesn't see them as those who fall away. It's a danger, but he doesn't see them there, and he encourages them, now let's just go on and get this right. Last week, he talked about the high priest of the Old Testament system. Um, he talked about their qualifications and their obligations. That's what we went over. But now he's stuck. He wants to go on, but it's difficult for him to do so, even though he has much to say. Much to say about what? Well, about Jesus belonging to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is surprising that he has much to say about that because the scriptures say so very little about Melchizedek. There's a, a lot of questions we have about this person that will never be answered, which the writer of Hebrews will see as part of the mystery of this figure, and those questions aren't supposed to be answered. They're supposed to be left hanging. That's for another time. He says it's hard to explain. And that's so true because the backstory of Melchizedek is not well known. And he has to bring to them the backstory, at least some of it, and then also the meaning of that, that, that he found in studying the passage in Genesis that talks about Melchizedek and the prophecy regarding him in Psalm 110. What he wants to explain about Jesus and being a high priest in particular is very important. But understanding what he has to say depends on them learning something new. Now, if it's true that they're discouraged because Jesus hasn't returned, um, like many of their grandparents or parents believed in their own time, um, maybe they don't want to hear it. There's something about, you know, Melchizedek they need to know, but Melchizedek was as foreign a name to them as it is to us. I mean, would you name your child Melchizedek? Mel, maybe, um, but not the whole thing. The root of the problem, he says, is you have become dull of hearing. I really want to explain these things. I'm excited about them. I want to take you through these, these things. But it's difficult because you are dull of hearing. The word dull uh, appears again in verse 12. In fact, it, it's kind of like bookends to this passage. It begins with their dullness, and it ends with him saying, don't be sluggish. That's translated sluggish. It can mean uh, lethargic. You're not trying hard enough. You're a lazy learner, uh, we might say. Jesus told uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, you're slow to learn. Um, you know, step it up here. Get your head in the game, so to speak. H have you ever started reading a book or an article, and, and once you've gotten into it, you find that it's either too technical 
or the argument is, is too complex um, to keep going, so you give up. In other words, if you're going to go on, you're going to have to get a dictionary and look up those technical terms, or you're going to have to really think through the argument, maybe even write notes to yourself to, to figure it out, and you just don't want the bother. Uh, so you pick up your, your novel instead, or you pick up your iPhone and open up to social media. Mistake, but um, that's what's happening here. Uh, he says, I want to explain this to you. It's a little technical, and you just don't want to hear it. You're, you're dull of hearing. Now, the, the evidence uh, that they were unprepared to listen, or unwilling to listen, which might have been the case, um, he goes on to verse 12. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He tells them where they ought to be, and then tells them where they are. Where they ought to be by this time, you ought to be teachers. Enough time has passed that they should be further down the road. If you've heard that someone has been playing guitar for the last 30 years, you expect that person to be able to play very well on the instrument. These people should have known enough to be able to help others. And you know, that's really a big part of Christian growth, is you become comfort to others. You become encouragement to others. Your words lift up the, the spirit of others. Do you remember in chapter three of Hebrews, the writer said, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, we can do this for each other. We're even learning how to do it in this, uh, this time of quarantine. And we really need to be prepared in this way to care for others. We never have to be without words. We never have to be without deep thoughts. Paul said in Romans, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I have to say, that I love you, uh, uh, my friends at Reflection, uh, and I, I really appreciate, appreciate the way you do look after each other. Uh, you do share with each other. You do try to encourage each other. It's so refreshing compared to a church where everyone's trying to straighten everyone else out. Um, it's funny, but, but 
think that a healthy community um, that is bonded in Christ and does have this mutual ministry to each other, I think that it naturally wards off those who want to come in and stir up controversy, those who want to um, straighten out everyone else's doctrine, that that unnecessary waste of energy um, that, that Paul tells Timothy not to engage in wars of words and that sort of thing, that's eliminated. Anyway, that's where they ought to be. They ought to be teachers, but where they are, it says you need someone to teach you the basic principles. Now, the, the Greek is a little bit more than that. Literally, someone needs to teach you the fundamentals of the beginning. Now, the fundamentals of the beginning in Greek thought would include learning your ABCs. You need to go back. You're not ready to read. You've got to go back and learn the alphabet. And once you've learned the alphabet, you can read. And once you read, you're reading about Dick and Jane. And then you advance from there to Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys, wherever you go from there these days. I don't even want to know. Anyway, you need to be trained once again in the fundamentals from the beginning of the oracles of God. Okay, an oracle is the word of God delivered or the word of God spoken. Okay, this is what the writer has been doing uh, all the way through. Uh, he's keeping the word of God alive and powerful by the way he uses it, by the way he quotes it, uh, even the way he introduces his quotes. Uh, he doesn't say, the Bible says, or my text for today, he, he says, God says, as though God's speaking that word right now. Uh, Ken, uh, Ken Schenk, a theologian, said, Hebrews has no explicitly stated theology of the scripture. What Hebrews does have is a pervasive sense of God speaking and thus of God's word, his logos. Timothy Johnson said, in Hebrews, scripture is always a matter of God's speech. This is so true. You know, um, God gave the revelation of the law to Moses and he gave him revelation of more than the law. He gave him revelation of himself. Personally, he appeared to Moses. He allowed Moses to witness his glory. And as God appeared to Moses, he spoke words of theology to him. But later on, through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Obey my voice, and as we go along, I'm going to command you 
to turn left, to turn right, uh, to walk in my ways. And if you do this, if you, if you hear my voice today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If you hear my voice, if you hear my voice coming through scripture, if you hear my voice within your heart, if you hear my voice speaking through others, as sometimes he does, if you hear my voice in the thunder or the crashing waves, or if you hear my voice in the gentle whisper of the wind passing by, in all these ways, God's voice comes to us, and if we hear it and obey it, then we're solid. Okay, so these, this is what he means by the oracles of God. Not just what God said, but how he still speaks through what he has said. It's always about God speaking to us in the here and now. Learning to listen to that speech is part of the skill we develop in coming to know him better. Okay, now the writer gives us an analogy that paints a very clear picture. We don't feed infants solid food. We, we introduce solid food in stages. First, the soft, mushy stuff, and, and once they have teeth and can chew the, the rougher stuff, then that's what they get. Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians. He says, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready for it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing to his audience. You're not ready for the good stuff. You're not, you're not ready for the full um, menu. And that's because they're unskilled or inexperienced in the word of righteousness. Oh, the word of righteousness. There's so many ways of referring to the Bible. He's already said that it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he'll, um, he'll refer to it as the living word of the living God. Now, uh, here it's the word of righteousness. And I, I've mentioned this many times before. Righteousness is not a moral word. It's a relational word. It's only moral to, to the degree that we practice right relationships with God and with each other. Righteousness is doing whatever is appropriate given the nature of the relationship you have with someone else. So with God, it's always going to be trust, obedience, worship, prayer. And with others, it depends on if you recognize them as having a status above yours, showing respect, um, and anything else, you treat them uh, as yourself. Now, here in the United States, I think we're really mixed up about righteousness. If righteous mean, righteousness means doing what's right, um, we have a, a different idea about that. Righteousness is how I, or what's right, is how I treat God and others. But we've made it about ourselves my rights, seeking justice for myself. And that's, that's 
misled us. We're always then looking out for ourselves, what's right for me, and not paying attention what's right for all of us in this, and what's right in terms of how I treat you. And I, it, it doesn't mean I can demand others to treat me in a certain way. And I'm not saying that we become doormats or we don't have good boundaries, but um, by and large, many of us can treat people a lot better than we have. I mean, to treat a grocery clerk as, as a friend, as a neighbor, and not as someone who works for us, that we can, that we can criticize because the customer is always right. Uh, and I can tell you that, that ain't true. Um, God's concern is not with how much scripture we memorize. It's about how the scripture transforms us, how it's changing us. So to be inexperienced in the word of righteousness means that it hasn't done much to move you toward that righteousness that God's looking for. There's not an improvement in the relational quality of your interaction with others. So we want to be aware of that and allow God's voice to speak to us about those things, especially we, when we are in the moment with someone else. How does the writer characterize the mature believer? Um, and by the way, the word mature is related to the word for perfect. Uh, its root, uh, teleos, has to do with the end of things. That can be when something comes to an end or when something comes to completion, to wholeness. Uh, it can refer to when the harvest is ready. So um, he, he sees this mature, complete believer. Uh, it's also the word that's translated perfected when Jesus was perfected through suffering. Um, he's talking about someone who has undergone lots of intense training. And it doesn't mean we all have to enroll in Bible college or we have to get into discipleship groups or you know, fill out blank spaces in some Bible study guide that we've been given, which are mostly a waste of time. Um, rather, uh, okay, let's look at, look at what this training does for a person. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, powers, uh, it does have the idea of abilities, but especially with the mental ability to be able to perceive something. And it sometimes is used of our, of our senses, our internal senses, what am I feeling inside my body? What aches? What feels upset or stretched? Um, and our external senses, those that bring in information from the world around us. And these perceptions, these sense perceptions, can be developed to discern what is right from what is wrong. It's, it's possible to develop these perceptions. 
For example, it's not always right to be right. There's some people who have to always be right, and if you make a technical mistake, they have to correct you. And I don't know if it's an OCD thing or an ego thing or what, but um, sometimes it's right to be silent. It's right to let a slip go. It's right to let poor Cranmer go, or whatever it is. It's not always right to be always right. Sometimes it's right to be good. It's right to be patient. It's right to be empathetic and understanding. The immature believer sees everything as black and white, as right or wrong. And, and that's how we teach our children, because their thinking is very concrete. Uh, until they reach a certain age, they don't develop symbolic thinking so much. They're not ready for the subtle nuances within what's right and what's wrong. Um, but that, that right or wrong thinking, that hard line, black or white, well, that kind of thinking would have stoned the woman that Jesus forgave. If he did what was right, if he answered the question that was asked him, and he gave the right answer, it would have been to stone that woman according to the law of Moses. That's not the answer he gave. The answer he gave was the right answer in a different context. Not in a black and white context, but in a context of color. All the colors. Mature is more complex, and it includes a disciplined intuition. Quickly then, they have been trained, the mature have been trained. We acquire new skills through repetition. So whether it's learning to balance on a bicycle or a skateboard, play an instrument, practice our scales, it's repetition that gets this wired into our brain so that we can do these things automatically. We can ride a bike without thinking about balance. They've trained. It's a constant training. It's not haphazard. It's a disciplined constancy. You have to do your hour of practice at the keyboard or your five hours or whatever it is, depending on how far you want to go. You've got to get in the pool and swim those laps if you're going to be an Olympic athlete. And they're trained and it's constant and it's practice. Again, practice is going over it repeatedly. Uh, you practice it right. So we are trained with new skills that we practice constantly and that's when discernment begins to be internalized. What does that mean? It means that if I'm trying to figure out if something is right in this situation or wrong, if I don't have it internalized, if I haven't practiced this in my life, I may have to look it up uh, Google it. I may have to talk to someone who knows more than I do. Uh, I may have to think about it for a long time. It may keep me up at night. But if I've internalized these things, 
the answer may come really swiftly. Oh no, I've been here before. I know how this goes. I'm not going to get involved or I'm going to get involved, right? An experienced doctor, for example, can see a patient. Now, the inexperienced doctor will go by the book. First, we have to run this test, then we have to run this test, and then we have to do these x-rays. What comes next is this. We guess at what's wrong, and then we test that by looking for specific symptoms. The experienced doctor may look at a person, look at the person's gait, look at the person's complexion, look in the person's eyes, listen to the complaints, and just by touching the patient may come up with a diagnosis. Why? Experience over and over, seen this before. For example, if uh, someone is having uh, an attack of, of appendicitis, the experienced doctor, family practice physician, may spot this right away and know just where and how to touch the patient to confirm the diagnosis and say, we're taking you to the operating room right now. Can you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's telling us there's a prerequisite we have to fulfill to take the next course of study in Jesus. He confronts us without condemning us. This is a challenge, and he's challenging us as, as a coach would challenge an athlete. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a, a runner on the track team, and he was fast. Uh, he was very tall, he had these long legs, he could move them fast. And we had this, this track coach, Mr. O'Donnell, who's a wonderful man, a truly wonderful man. He was Scottish. And whenever this athlete was running the track, McDonald, or, uh, Coach O'Donnell would yell at him and say, You've got to punish yourself, Partridge! And I'll never forget his voice calling out across the, the track, You've got to punish yourself! If you're going to be good, you've got to push yourself to get further. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to punish yourself because he wants us to be making significant pro progress. What, what worries him? That these people might be losing their faith and falling away from Jesus. Could happen to any believer. It could happen this wonderful revival called the Jesus Movement. It could happen to any community of believers, any church. And, and it's so subtle. It's, it's like the church is getting colder by degrees. And because it's so gradual, no one notices that our love for Jesus is not red hot like it used to be that the intensity of our conversations about Jesus are not what they used to be. This temptation comes to every believer. We all have periods of discouragement, seasons of wilderness, times when either nothing about our faith makes sense or nothing seems believable anymore. 
we have temptations to slack off or to get fixated on other things. The word, the word, the word. This is the reason that a couple chapters ago the author said to us, consider Jesus. Consider him and keep on considering and contemplating Jesus. Let him always be in your thoughts. You know, the only way to develop a friendship is by spending time together. And the only way to develop a friendship with Jesus is by spending time with him. Talk to Jesus around the house. Talk to him about what you're thinking, what you're worried about, what you're planning on. Just talk out loud to him if no one else is around. Talk to him when you're driving in your car. Let him be the companion who is with you. Um, I'd, say let, I'd say let him drive, but that could become dangerous. Not that he's a bad driver, I'm sure, but you know, if you let go of the steering wheel yourself, he might tell you that was dumb. Talk to Jesus. If it helps, imagine that he's right there. Then let your faith tell, tell you he is right there. We can't allow ourselves to lose that first love. It's okay if the romance wears off. That happens. But we can't let go of the passion. Romance is sitting on the beach watching the waves roll in. Passion is riding the waves. May God bless us this week, sending us frequent reminders of Jesus and helping us to turn talking to Jesus into an ongoing practice. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.